Well, last week we began discussing uh, the final passage in Acts chapter 4, um, specifically verses 32 through 37. And we're, we're kind of lingering here, and I'm just doing a little mini-series on the theme that is uh, addressed here in these verses. And so this is the second in that three-part mini-series on the grace of generosity. Listen as I read that passage for us, and uh, just listen this time. Don't read along. I'll have you read along in a few minutes. But now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now what we saw in this passage fundamentally is that the first Christian church of Jerusalem adopted a hands-off communal approach to sharing their possessions and a selfless uh, radically generous approach to meeting their, uh, the real financial and material needs of each member. And the result was the historically unique circumstance that there was not a needy person among them. If you don't find that to be a mind blower, you need to just spend a little more time on that, a little more time reflecting on that. There was not a needy person among them, and the gospel continued to advance with power through the preaching of the apostles. We're talking today about generosity, and and we're going to have a conversation about money and possessions. And there's two things I want to say right up front about that. First, this conversation is not about what God or the church wants from you. Let me just repeat that. This conversation is not about what God or the church wants from you. Instead, it's about what he wants for you. Things like financial freedom and the peace that comes from knowing that you're managing what he has entrusted to you in ways that are pleasing and honoring to him. Secondly, I want you to know that I'm fully aware that people get uncomfortable when we talk about this stuff in church. If we're honest, we'll admit that among the reasons we get uncomfortable is this, that in our heart of hearts, we've allowed ourselves to become convinced that our personal value and significance is directly determined by our income and the content of our bank accounts. And for that reason, we protect those things very carefully, don't we? And we Americans have an above-average tendency to root our personal sense of worth and well-being in all of that. So let's face it, in our culture, 
material wealth is a big deal. In American society, we're being told over and over again in a thousand different ways that our personal value, our personal significance, are determined by our wealth or our lack of it. For example, I don't fly very often, but I noticed on one of the most recent occasions that the flight attendant said something like this, Welcome to Alaska Airlines Flight 2566 with service to Phoenix. And then she added, we especially want to welcome our VIP club passengers and frequent flyers. And all of us in coach kind of hung our heads and said to ourselves, well, we're not VIP, we're not, we're not very important passengers. We're just, you know, we're not, we don't belong to the club, we're just little people sitting here squished together in the back of the plane. So how, how about a few more examples? Some women will say, well, my man must love me more than your man loves you because look at the ring you put on my finger. Hmm. Some of us parents might say to other parents, well, we obviously love our kids more than you love your kids because uh, look at the kind of toys we put in their toy box. And others will say something like, oh, I'm clearly a bigger fish than y'all because you got to look at the car I just drove up in. See, something I know this morning is that at some point in this conversation, I'm, I'm going to offend everyone in the room. But did you know that uh, we're never offended by something unless there's some element of truth involved? See, so for example, if you tell me I'm too smart, probably not going to bug me. Right? If you tell me my hair is too dark, that's probably not going to trust, not going to hurt me at all. Tell me I can stand to lose a little weight and maybe spend a little more time in the gym. That punch will probably land. <laughs> there's, there's some truth there. So if you do happen to get upset or offended this morning, my name is Evan Appleby. And uh, <laughs> you can uh, email me at mylpcoli.com slash I am offended. <laughs> But it really is true, isn't it, that when we talk about God and money or God and possessions, we have a tendency to want to pull away. A lot of what God has to say about our money and our material possessions is counterintuitive. It doesn't always make sense at first because it runs counter to what we usually think. It runs counter to prevailing philosophy. And I want you to know today that it's okay if you don't agree with me about what I have to say, but may I ask this of you? Will you please now just hang in there and give it your consideration? Does anyone recognize what what this is? Um, it's called a finger trap. When I was a kid, we called them Chinese finger traps. Uh, no racial overtones there. We, Other than they were probably made in China. I think that's probably why. The thing about it is that when your fingers are inserted into the tube, when you try to pull out, you're trapped. When you pull away, you're trapped. And the key to regaining your freedom is to push in. Push in. In the same way financial freedom comes when you make the decision to push in to God's wisdom and God's counsel on the subject. Because God, what God wants us to experience when it comes to our money and material possessions is peace and freedom. Peace and freedom. 
So for the next several minutes, will you just push in to some of what God has to say on this subject instead of pulling away? We also introduced a principle last week that's central to this series, and it is what we think we own is really on loan. Will you say that out loud with me? What we think we own is really on loan. See, everything we have is on loan from God. It's like what we were just singing. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Minus the breath, we can't praise. We have to acknowledge that it's from him. In fact, God wants to say to us, the most basic thing that you need to understand is that you don't really own anything. We've been watching this uh, series of videos on, I think it's on Netflix. I think it's on Netflix. But it's on the great castles of, of Europe or great castles of England or something like that. And uh, occasionally they'll, they'll, they'll run through this list of kings and they'll just kind of show them real fast. Boom, 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 boom. And what strikes me is how short their lives were. You know, they were kings. They were people of significance. But they only lived really short lives. They were here for a time and they were gone. And everything that they may have created, everything they may have done during that time was soon forgotten. And I think our lives are like that, aren't they? Our lives are much shorter than we think. When we're gone, it all goes to somebody else anyway. See, everything, everything you have or ever will have comes from God's hand. Everything you think you own is really on loan. It's all his. And he says, look, I have just entrusted it to you for a little while. A little while. And what those people in the first Christian church of Jerusalem had learned or were learning is that everything belongs to him. He's the owner. He owns it all. And so they were able, in that understanding, to share generously and even sacrificially and to keep on doing it. If you have a Bible this morning, turn to First First Chronicles rather 29. Uh, coincidentally, it's the passage that Mark read to us earlier. First Chronicles 29, 10 to 14. We looked briefly last week at this passage, and I want to just pay it another visit as we transition into today's focus. So last week we saw that, that King David understood the principle of God's ownership of everything. And what's happening in this passage, what, what precedes what we're about to read is that uh, King David had been saving money. He had, he'd been accumulating, uh, building materials for his grand, grand obsession, which was the construction of a temple uh, for God in Jerusalem, a dwelling place for God among his people. And finally, the day had come for it all to kind of get kick-started and, and all the people had gathered. And then David brought all, and, and it must have been this massive procession. We're not, we're, we're not told um, what it must have looked like, but we're all, we are told in, a, in another place what he had accumulated, and it was vast. So I don't know, it wasn't like bringing a little pot of stuff up to the altar at the church. It must have been this grand parade of of stuff that was brought. And 
And then once David had given his enormous contribution, then the, all the various leaders of Israel, it says the heads of families, the heads of tribes, the commanders and officers, each gave very, very generously as well. In fact, we would say they gave lavishly, sacrificially. So why don't you stand and let's read this one together. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people? that we should be able thus to offer willingly. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. This is God's word. You may be seated. So this morning, let's revisit the principle of ownership, specifically that everything in heaven and on earth is his. What we think we own is really on loan. The Bible characterizes the lives of God's people as strangers and aliens on the earth. It uses words like pilgrims and sojourners. This earth is not our home. That's the message. It's not our final destination. And the fundamental truth that we need to grasp is that God owns this earth on which we spend our brief lives. He owns the earth, the sea, the sky, everything in them. The things we think we own are really on loan. They came from him, they're his now, and when we die, they'll still be his. And I want you to see from the passage we just read three more truths about money and material possessions. The first is this, that it's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to be rich. If you've spent a little bit of time studying Jesus' teachings on money, you may have come to the incorrect conclusion that it's somehow a sin to be rich. After all, Jesus said the love of money is the root of all evil, right? Wrong. Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul said, the love of money is a root, one of the roots of all kinds of evil. See, the Bible never teaches that it is a sin to be rich. We know that because we just read David saying to God, riches and honor come from you. Riches and honor come from you. You might say, uh, oh, I don't have to worry about being rich because I'm not. Uh, I'll have news for you. Everyone in the room today is rich. As I said that, some of you just got excited, didn't you? Because you you think Oprah might be waiting behind the curtain. Come out and give everybody something really big. Well, I called Oprah. She apologized she couldn't be here today. 
The fact remains that based on world standards, everybody in this room today is rich. Sometime this week, uh, you might go to this website. It's, it's howrichami.givingwhatwecan.org. Uh, I don't know why they chose that very difficult uh, <laughs> web address, but um, it, used to be called the, it used to be called the Global Rich List. And, and what you do is you go on this website, and it'll tell you where you are on a global scale with regard to your annual income or your total wealth. Let me give you just a general idea based on some recent recent statistics. I, I kind of gathered these from here and there on, on the web. If your annual gross income is 20000 or higher, you are in the top 9.5 percentile in the world. 20000 or higher. I, I didn't do the math on that. I, I, I would guess you could make that flipping hamburgers. Probably so. The median household income in Thurston County is $82,000 a year. And if you're in that, if you're anywhere close to that, you're in the top 1% of all earners worldwide. In other words, 99% of the world makes less than you do. The average household income in Thurston County is $74,091 but still that's in the top 1% worldwide. The average household net worth, and this one, this one's kind of shaky. I'm not real sure about this one because I I saw conflicting information, but I I shot at the middle (laughs) of the numbers. 650,000. Let's just go with that. If your average household net worth is $650,000, you're in the top 1% again of all of the world in wealth. If you own an automobile, by virtue of that alone, you're in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. In 2022, if you can afford to put gas in your automobile, you're wildly wealthy, right? And parents, here's one for you. If you calculate your child's annual income, you say, my child doesn't work. Um, Yeah, but they get birthday money, they get Christmas money maybe, they calculate the value of the gifts they receive, clothes, food that you feed them, the food that you feed them. What do you think? Maybe three grand? Three grand comes their way in a total year? Uh, that puts them in the top 32% of all wage earners in the world, all, all people in the world. See, I know that the term rich is a relative term. It's it's relative to the local economy. It's a moving target. But the general reason that few of us feel rich, I think, at least one of the major reasons is this. We'll just call it margin. Margin. We don't know how to live within our income. John Wesley was an 18th century pastor, a theologian, an evangelist, founder of the Methodist movement. And it said of John Wesley that his, his rule of life was to save all that he could and to give all that he could. Save all that he could and then to give all that he could. When he was a young student at Oxford, he had an income of 30 pounds per year. 
And as a student on that 30 pounds, he lived on 28 pounds and gave away the other two. And when his annual income increased to 60 pounds, then 90, then 120, what did he do? He still lived on 28 and gave the rest away to people in need. Wesley understood the principle of margin. He chose to increase his standard of giving instead of his standard of living. He chose to increase his standard of giving instead of his standard of living. A more contemporary example, you may recognize the name Rick Warren. He's the pastor of Saddleback Church in Southern California. He wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life, and he made a ton of money on that book. One of the best-selling books in, in all uh, history. And uh, But Rick and Kay Warren, when they were just newlyweds, young people, decided that they were going to tithe on their income. They, they gave 10% of the little bit they were earning at that time. And they decided that each year they were going to increase their giving by at least 1%. So the next year they, they went to 11%, and the next year 12%, and 13 and 14 and lived on the balance. And, of course, when he wrote The Purpose Driven Life, he, uh, he made... <laughs> His income just soared beyond whatever anything he ever could have imagined. Rick and Kay Warren today live on 9% of their income and give away 91%. They chose to increase their standard of giving rather than their standard of living as God prospered them. Here's the second truth from 1 Chronicles 29, that we have what we have because God the owner has blessed us. We have what we have because God the owner has blessed us. So you don't have to feel guilty about being rich because wealth and honor comes from God. If you've ever traveled to a third world country or even gone on a mission trip to some place like Mexico, when you come home, and that is if you know if you got out of the resort and saw how people actually live, when you come home, you realize how wealthy you really are. Now, at some point on that, uh, as you arrive home, you say something like, wow, God, you have really blessed me. Riches and honor come from him, not as a reward, but as a generous gift of his grace toward us. Most of us have to work, but there are many aspects of your life experience that you had nothing to do with. For example, you, you didn't choose where you were born. You, you could have been born in the barrios of Brazil, could have been born in the streets of Calcutta, the steppes of Tibet. Most of us here this morning, most of us were born in America, where we have incredible opportunity and incredible material blessing. We didn't choose that. It's a blessing from God. The very capacities required to earn wealth are from God. What then should our response to God's blessings to us be? Love, gratitude, praise, joy, trust, humility, awe, accountability, generosity. Here's how David responded on behalf of the people. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? Who am I? And who are my people 
that we should be able to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. When we come to the third truth in First Chronicles 29, this is where it gets touchy for some people. Because what we do with our money reveals what we believe about God. It reveals what we believe about Him. And this is why a lot of people don't like to talk about this in church. For most of us, if we haven't involved God in our thinking and our valuing and our acting with regard to our money and our possessions, then when it comes to faith, we're, we're kind of just in general agreement. What do I mean by general agreement? Well, you're in general agreement when on an intellectual level, you come to a point of saying, yes, I agree that I'm a sinner. I agree that I need a savior. Jesus, I invite you into my life. That's a starting point and that's general agreement. Confession, to confess means to say the same thing about, same thing about what? Same thing that God says about us and about our sin and our need for a savior. That's general agreement. And he comes in to us, into our lives, when we invite him to do that. When you allow yourself to think about it, you might begin to realize that the question of ownership of our money and possessions are probably the first real test on our journey of faith, the journey of Christian discipleship. So what do you think? How are you doing with the test? How are you doing with the test? You know, I, I used to be really uncomfortable, uncomfortable about even the idea of teaching on this, uh, on this stuff. And what changed my heart, and some of you have, some of you know this, what changed my heart and my whole attitude and my whole sense of freedom in talking about it was when I realized that when Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I realized that he was laying down a foundational principle of Christian discipleship, of what it means to be his followers. That we've got to deal with this issue of our money, our possessions, our relationship to them, how we steward them. See, we're in general agreement when we're willing to give God a couple of hours of our personal and family time each week for church or a life group or for serving others. But beyond that, we build this high wall of protection around our personal time, around our resources, around our hobbies. And I want to suggest to you today that you're not really trusting God in a real-life faith journey until you involve God in the management of your stuff, your money, your possessions. And up until that point, you're just in general agreement. You're intellectually engaged, you're mentally in tune, but you're not yet personally invested. This test of ownership is personally challenging, and that's the reason we've asked you not to pull away. Each of us has to decide who owns our lives, who owns our stuff, who has ultimate authority over it all. So the question is, first question is, is Jesus Lord of your life? If he's the Lord of your life, then he's the Lord of your stuff. 
If he doesn't own your stuff, he doesn't own your life. If you say he's the owner, but you're not yet willing to bow your knee to him in the area of this first test of faith, then here's where you are. You're just in general agreement. Turn over in your Bible to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And there Jesus tells a parable about money and possessions. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And if you have a Bible, just underline that. And let's repeat that out loud together. A man's life, say it with me, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Notice he addresses uh, the watch out, the warning about greed to the crowd. And, And like us, they also tended to think like owners. And like theirs, our society teaches that it's all about wealth. We think it's about the house, the car, the clothing, the hobbies, the travel, the prestige. We think it's about the whole pile, right? And now Jesus is about to teach them and us about this very different kind of relationship that he wants us to have with the possessions he's given us. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. So here we have a rich farmer, right? Rich, successful farmer. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Now let's just stop right there. God said, what? What was it? You fool. Kind of harsh, isn't it? Come on, Jesus. He goes on. He says, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Jeepers. Underline those last three words, rich toward God. You have to read this passage and I'd ask, Jesus, why are you so upset with this guy? There must be something wrong with the American dream because this guy's living it. He's obviously a good farmer. He's being responsible with his acquisitions. He's building barns, probably providing jobs, contributing to the economy. And he's finally enjoying the fruit of his own diligence, his own faithfulness. What's the problem? And let's not miss the seriousness of God's response to this man. 
See, and you might say, well, there it is. It's a sin to be rich. The problem is not that he's rich. The problem is that he's a fool. The problem is not that he's rich. The problem is that he's a fool. See, this word fool is not used lightly in the Bible. In God's economy, the fool is the man or the woman who rejects the wisdom and the knowledge of God, rejects the authority of God over his or her life. That's the fool. So let's go back and ask a little question here. How many times did this man ask God for his counsel with regard to any of it? Let me read it again as I'm reading. Check out the pronouns in the passage. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, change of pronouns, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So let's count. How many times did the man ask God for his counsel? No, none. None. The only conversation this man was having is with himself. None of us knows the day we're going to die. For that man, it was that night. See, he was thinking like an owner instead of a manager. And listen, a manager has to ask a completely different question than the owner asks. Will you repeat that after me? A manager has to ask a completely different question than the owner asks. Again, a manager has to ask a completely different question than the owner asks. Is Jesus saying it's wrong to save money and prepare for the future? No, not what he's saying. There are a lot of scriptures in the Bible that speak to the wisdom of saving up and preparing for lean seasons. A lot of them are in the book of Proverbs, a a book of wisdom. Is Jesus against retirement? It depends on what you mean by retirement. If by retirement you mean wisely investing and saving so that there comes a day when you don't have to work for someone else anymore, then no, God is not against that. In fact, he's for that. But if what you mean by retirement is that there comes a time when you can quit investing yourself in the kingdom of God and do nothing else but pursue your own leisure for the rest of your life, then no, God is not excited about that. And you won't find that celebrated anywhere in Scripture. In fact, it's just the opposite. As long as God has you here, you have a purpose. And as long as you're part of the family of God on earth, there's work for you to do. Several years ago, I read about a woman named Janine Roth who lost 30 years of retirement savings that she had invested in what she thought was a fail-safe fund 
with a brilliant financial guru named Bernie Madoff. Any of you remember that name? And in her book titled Lost and Found, in which she wrote about the experience, she revealed that after receiving the phone call that informed her that all of her money had evaporated, she felt as if she had died and for some unknown reason was still breathing. A woman's life does not consist in the abundance of her possessions. She had spent her career leading workshops and writing books to help compulsive eaters. She herself had struggled with binge eating and dieting. And after losing her money, she said that she began to see that her relationship with money was the same as her relationship with food. She never felt satisfied, never felt as if she had enough. And here's just a quote from her book. Over the years, I've often asked my students to consider that the very body they spend hours a day obsessing about will get old, wrinkled, sick, and die. You can't take your inner thighs with you, I would say, so decide what you value most. Spend time on that. From my post-Madoff catbird seat, it occurred to me that spending time perfecting this body is no different from spending time accumulating or worrying about money. No one ever dies rich. They just die. No one ever dies rich. They just die. What you think you own, what you think you own, is really on loan. See, when you think back, it may be easier to say, God, it's all yours when you're young and you don't have much. When I was a college student was making many of the major spiritual decisions of my life, I was dirt poor. I owned a record player, some records, some good ones. I don't know whatever happened to them. An old Dodge that was worth about $300 on a good day. Uh, some books, a collection of dog-eared posters. Might have been a black lamp, black light in there somewhere to go with the posters few changes of clothes. But God was speaking to me about ownership. And I said, God, it's not much, but it's all yours. And God said, wow, thanks. But here's the deal. Get this. It may be easier to give everything to God when you don't have much, but it's also more strategic. The reason is because as we get older, and the owner blesses us with more stuff, it gets harder for some reason to surrender it back to him, doesn't it? Over time, it gets too easy to start thinking that we're the owners, that somehow we created all of this stuff. And that's why you and I need to settle the question as soon as possible in our lives, as early as possible. Good managers Always ask a different question than owners. What would the owner have me do with his stuff? Or more precisely, what would the owner do if he were in my place? What we think we own is really on loan. Parents, let's say that you make your kid a great lunch to take to school. I mean, you you pour yourself into that lunch because you love your kid and you just want him to have a, a great, healthy, nourishing lunch. And, 
And your kid comes home and you ask if he ate it and he says, no, I just ate half. And you say, what? I, I worked hard to make that lunch. Why didn't you eat it? And your child says, well, there's, there's this kid named Bill at school who didn't have a lunch. So I shared mine with him. What do you do at that moment? You think, <laughs> what a great parent that kid must have, you know, to, to act like that. You want to reward your kid for being so generous, don't you? See, God's like that. He, he blesses us with stuff, and then he says, I want you to share generously. And his heart is moved to reward his kids when they reflect his heart and mind in that way. Managers ask a different question. What would the owner have me do? How many of you don't own the company where you work? Come on. How many of you don't own the company where you work? But you work for somebody else. What does that mean? That means in part that you're always to do what the owner wants you to do, right? At least, at least the majority of the time and the way the owner wants it done, what he wants you to do, and the way he wants it done. And if you do, you're rewarded. And if you don't, you get promoted to staying at home. This is a little sensitive, what I'm about to say, and I know it. But could it be that sometimes we don't feel we have enough because we haven't involved the owner? Because we haven't given consideration to his Priorities? Could it be that sometimes we don't pass the blessed test? Could it be that God gives us more, not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving? Managers ask a different question. What would the owner have me do with that which with, with which he has entrusted me? And here's in general outline what the owner would have us do with our money. Three things. Give, save, live. Give, save, live. Give to the Lord first. There's a biblical principle called the principle of first fruits. It's giving a portion back to God because we recognize him as the owner right off the top. First fruits. That's where tithing comes in. Secondly, God would have you save a percentage second. Save for the future. Save for lean times. And then third, he'd have you live on the rest. And he wants you to live well. See, most of us, Reverse the order. We live first. And we, we focus all of our money on the living. We might save a little second, although the data says that Americans aren't saving anymore. And then finally, we give God whatever's left over, if there is anything left over. And we go, whoopsie. Sorry, God. And I'm not here to talk about percentages today. I'm just talking about this principle of ownership. I heard, I heard a guy say one time he realized he had been tipping God all of his life. And I asked him, what does that mean? He, he answered, well, from whatever's left over, I've 
I've just given God a few bucks here and a few bucks there when I've had it. And I said to him, no, no, you haven't been tipping God because everyone knows that a good tip is at least 15% these days. And see, if you want a percentage, God asked for 10. That's, that's the meaning of the word tithe. And that freaks some of you out, this whole idea of tithing. But it's really about settling the matter of ownership. It's a, it's a spiritual principle. It's about what God wants for you. And it's all about trusting him and allowing him to show you how he can bless you in return. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that next week. But just remember, when it comes to financial stewardship, it's not about what God wants from you. It's about what he wants for you. He wants you to know freedom. He wants you to know peace that comes from knowing that you're managing your finances in ways that are pleasing and that are honoring to him. Managers ask a different question. What would the owner have me do? So this week, I just encourage you to uh, as you have time, uh, ask yourself uh, a couple of questions. First of all, where in my life am I acting like the owner instead of acting like a manager? Where am I acting like an owner instead of a manager? And speaking as a manager to the owner of all things, ask, God, what would you have me do with all that you've entrusted to me to manage for you on your behalf? Everybody has money. Everyone has possessions. He increases our standard of living to increase our standard of giving. Managers ask a different question. God, what would you have me do with your stuff? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks right down into our lives, into our hearts, into that place where decisions are made, our volition, our will, our affections, our passions. And Lord, would you teach us what it means to live as faithful stewards, faithful managers, of all that you've entrusted to us, that you, Lord, would be glorified through us and that the world would look on and say, those people know how to love each other. They must be followers of Jesus. We pray that you would help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.